This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Good morning. How is everybody? A bit so subdued. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Insights at Friends of Europe and the moderator for this year's edition of the World Energy Outlook, which has become an annual affair, as you know, those of you who've been following us. Um, we're very grateful that the IEA partner with us each year uh, for this occasion where we take a look at, at the energy um, uh, context, market, forecast, where have we got to? And some have, as, as you've been following the press, people call it the scorecard on energy. And actually we couldn't have met or be meeting at uh, a more important political and geopolitical time, if you like. Um, and just by way of context and introduction to our very first speaker, who is Director General at the European Commission, who will be taking over the mandate of All Matters Energy, um, in a time where we're just about to have a newly formed commission, a new college, and a new structure. We'll wait and see what is inside the new Green Deal, but we hear more about that from Dieter, who's about to join me uh, on the panel. But I suppose one of the interesting things that since we met last year, we could talk about Trump, but actually let's think about what's happened in the past year in terms of the Greta effect. Let's think about the fact that Venice is almost underwater. Um, and we have the geopolitical tensions, um, the whole region of the Middle East, given the fact that we are reliant on oil still as a world, um, and we're not making enough progress as we should do in terms of the transition to a greener, less carbon context. Um, it seems that our pace of change still hasn't caught up with the science, and also, interestingly enough, the feelings of people. And before I invite uh, Dish onto the stage, we conducted uh, a poll of citizens um, this year in September, and we asked them, what are the top three things that the new EU mandate should focus on? So this is a poll of about 13,000, just under 13,000 citizens across Europe, across every age group, region, rural, city, demographics in whatever you can think of in terms of education, non-education, the top priority that came up across all citizens was to tackle climate change. Jobs and security were second and third, but climate change came to the top, where last year it was second, almost third. And it just shows you what people are thinking and feeling in terms of what needs to happen politically. So on that note, I'd like to invite Dieter onto the stage. We're looking forward to hearing from you in terms of what can we expect from the new mandate in terms of the Green Deal? Thank you. Thank you very much for the kind welcome. Uh, thank you to uh, Friends of Europe for hosting this event. Uh, but first of all, thank you to you, Fatih, uh, Dr. Fatih Biol, for making the presentation of the World Energy Outlook here in Brussels and to the European Union. Um, as was just said, the timing of the World Energy Outlook is particularly good this year. We are at the beginning of a new mandate of the European Commission. Once the uh, European Parliament has voted in the uh, Commission of President-elect Ursula von der Leyen, we start on a new five-year term. And we start on a new five-year term where the green transition uh, is at the center of European policy um, and politics. 
Um, and so the timing of your report, but also the substance of your report, the analysis uh, in the report um, is uh, very uh, helpful for the European Union. Uh, it provides um, interesting uh, data, interesting analysis, uh, relevant data and relevant analysis, um, and it dovetails very well with the work we have done uh, internally, essentially providing um, an analytical underpinning of both the long-term strategy that was announced under Commissioner Arias Caneta in this mandate, but also uh, an analysis um, and an assessment that underpins the work that we are setting out as part of the Green Deal that President-elect Ursula von der Leyen has announced in her political guidelines earlier uh, this year over the summer. And so I would like to say a few words about what our current thinking is as regards the energy aspects of the Green Deal and how that fits with uh, the analysis that uh, Fatih and his team have provided in the World Energy Outlook. Now, the first thing I note is that the report is very, very clear that if we continue as we are, uh, from where we are now, with the current policies, then we will not achieve our objectives of a climate neutral Europe, we will not achieve our objectives of lowering the dependence on fossil fuels, and we will not be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so in other words, business as usual, continuing on the current basis, is not a possible way forward. It is not an option. Um, I note also that the report recognizes the need for action both in terms of implementing the policies that have already been announced, but also taking a step forward into the sustainable scenario, uh, doing more to lower greenhouse gas emissions. A number of the aspects uh, of uh, our energy policy and of the future Green Deal fit very well with this analysis and with the requirements that are clearly outlined in the report um, and the demands on us as governments, as policymakers, that are necessary to address climate change by a further decarbonisation of our economy um, and uh, a lowering of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the Green Deal uh, was announced, as I said, in the political guidelines in July this year by the President-elect Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, once the new Commission has been voted in by the European Parliament, we hope that that will happen in the, in the coming weeks, then the Green Deal will be is scheduled to be adopted by the incoming Commission in the first 100 days of the mandate. The Green Deal is exactly what the title suggests. Uh, it's a deal. It's a deal that aims to combine different uh, policy objectives in a balanced approach towards the green transition meaning that we need to lower our greenhouse gas emissions, but we need to do that in a sustainable way that reflects both uh, European competitiveness, global competitiveness for, uh, for Europe, that reflects the growth uh, potential that we also see as part of the green, uh, of the green transition, that uh, is cost-effective, that is inclusive in making sure that there will be a just and fair transition for all Europeans um, both in geographic terms, but also from all parts of, uh, of society uh, and, and industry. It also has to be balanced between the economic objectives, the economic and social objectives, I said the climate objectives, but also it needs to consider energy security, both in terms of security of supply, but also uh, in terms of energy security in a broader sense and security policy as such. So as Director General for Energy of the European Commission, one of my roles in the coming years 
is to contribute to the Green Deal, to contribute to the lowering of greenhouse gas em emissions, and to do so in a balanced manner that is, as I said, cost-effective, reflects energy security, diversification of our energy sources, but also um, that goes towards decarbonisation. With this broad objective, the Green Deal is expected to be a broad policy framework that announces a number of initiatives uh, that can be taken over the coming years to lower greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Because energy production and energy consumption represent 75% of Europe's greenhouse gas emission, it, emissions, it's clear that energy policy is absolutely central to the Green Deal and to the green transition and to arriving at a carbon neutral Europe uh, in 2050. We are looking at a number of policy instruments to contribute to that. Um, which relies both on the uh, energy union and the clean energy for all package that was adopted in this mandate, but that also looks forward to possible further initiatives uh, that are necessary for a further decarbonisation of our energy, uh, in particular going through electrification and renewable energy sources. The first step in this context is an implementation of what we have already achieved, and in particular the, the clean energy for all package which sets the regulatory framework for a lot of the changes that are necessary in European energy policy. I would like to mention a couple of aspects, specifically in the Clean Energy for All package and in the Energy Union um, that we have adopted over this past mandate under my predecessor, Dominique Ristori, who retired this summer, um, and I would like to, together with uh, Commissioner Canete, congratulate and recognize for the excellent uh, and impressive progress made over the last five years in European energy policy. With the regulation we have set ourselves, we have got a firm governance framework that will uh, lead to, or that will bring about national energy and climate plans that member states will be presenting at the end of this year, which will set out um, how each member state will contribute to the targets for greenhouse gas emissions, for renewable energy and energy efficiency that we collectively as a European Union have set ourselves. We received earlier this summer the draft plans from member states and we have then been working very, very closely with member states over the past months to uh, fill the ambition gap uh, that is there and to get more detail into what is it member states will do to achieve uh, the targets. The national energy and climate plans are important as an instrument to, uh, to, the green transition, to achieve the green transition, but they're also important as an instrument of transparency and dialogue and cooperation across Europe and an exchange of practices among member states, learning from uh, expertise or experience in one part of Europe that may be relevant for other parts of Europe. At the same time, it's a possibility to engage with European citizens, with local authorities, municipalities, and, and across government, because the green transition will require work not just from our climate and energy ministries, but also from other sectors and other policy areas to contribute to, to this transition. Um, so I think that is one of the elements that I wanted to mention from the current regulatory framework. The second element that I want to mention is one that is also taken up very prominently in the World Energy Outlook, and that is that of energy efficiency. As the, uh, as the report that you will present today, uh, Dr. Fatih Biral recognizes, we need a new approach to energy efficiency, and we need further investments in energy efficiency to meet our targets for the reduction of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. What we have experienced in Europe over the, over the last uh, years 
is that we have set ourselves ambitious uh, objectives, but that it is in fact quite, in fact quite uh, complex. It's a complex exercise on how to meet the objectives, both because it requires investments, significant investments, but also because a lot of what can be done on energy efficiency in buildings is um, a local consideration or even an individual consideration or decision where we as governments and policymakers have to make sure that the regulatory frameworks are in place to facilitate investments into energy efficiency. So that is one of the issues that, uh, as I said, is recognized in the uh, World Energy Outlook, but it's also one of the issues that we expect to take up as part of the Green Deal, uh, because only by lowering energy consumption will we, uh, achieve, um, will we achieve our targets. The third component that I wanted to point to, um, and that is also recognized in the World Energy Outlook uh, and reflected both in our current framework, but also in, uh, in, in looking ahead to the Green Deal, is that of sector integration. A better integration or a better coupling of sectors, both in terms of energy uh, production, energy carriers and energy storage, such as hydrogen based on renewable uh, energy and on, on electricity. Um, but also other ways of integrating different sectors where we see very interesting um, uh, objectives and plans among industry that can allow us to, uh, to lower carbon emissions through our production process, through combining heating uh, um, and cooling um, and a further electrification of our energy carriers. So those were three aspects that I wanted to mention that I think uh, dovetail particularly well and are particularly clear uh, also as, um, as taken up in the World Energy Outlook report and where I hope that we as a European Commission and a European Union collectively can contribute to the green transition and to the changes in our energy production and energy consumption that will be necessary in the years to come. And so thank you very much once again for coming here. Thank you for the excellent report. We look forward to continuing working with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dieter. Um, and I know that you're going to have to go um, shortly, uh, but I, as I said, I will make sure that people in the audience who've got questions about what you've just heard will record them and will post them to you. Um, I found that very helpful, and, I, and this, is, um, this is not meant to be challenging, but it may appear so. What I didn't hear was about pace and targets. Those are the two things I didn't hear. And I think, obviously, in the context you're in at the moment, you don't want to actually spill the beans here in this room because you're still waiting to meet with the commissioner-elect and uh, un you know, unveil the, the new Green Deal. But I think um, the two things we will need is very specifically how the pace will be picked up and the targets that are going to be set around this. Because I think, as we've, we've heard on many occasions in this, in this room, money doesn't seem to be the, matter, the problem here. It's politics and the pace of ambition and actually getting the, the, the union to come together um, despite vested interest to move in the right direction, on the, in, the, in the right pace that we require. But on that note, thank you very much. On that note, I'd like to invite Fatih to the floor, to the stage. Someone that is very well known, uh, an annual character. He's the lead actor in our show for Energy Outlook uh, and leads this occasion each year. So you don't need any introduction. Fatih, please do join me on the stage here. Thank you very much. Over to you. So very good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. 
It is again a great pleasure to come uh, to Brussels and to share with you uh, some of the findings of our World Energy Outlook and discuss those and uh, exchange views on the energy and climate trends. First of all, many thanks to uh, Dite. Uh, I think I should tell you that we are all very lucky to have her as a director general. I was so impressed. So she took over this uh, dossier only a, f a few months ago, and she gave an excellent speech without looking at her notes. It's, it's incredible. So, and I feel now ashamed that I have so many notes uh, on this thing. I, I worked since 30 years on the energy issues. So uh, not only that, uh, uh, detail, but uh, the points you have mentioned are uh, very much, as you highlighted, in line with what we are trying to uh, uh, highlight in our world energy outlook. You mentioned uh, 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 Dominic Ristori. We all, I guess, uh, love Dominic. We miss her, but we are very happy to have Edita here. But for those who want to know how is Dominic, he's very fine. I had a, just a lunch with him just a few days ago in Paris. He still is very driven and still enjoys red wine in Paris, I can tell you that. So, uh, and, uh, uh, but we are so happy to have uh, Dite uh, with us uh, here and looking forward to work uh, with her and the commission further. We work so closely with commission, learn from them and uh, their experiences, share our views with them that I have now very recently appointed somebody from commission, uh, Mithit Wersthofer is our uh, director for uh, technology and uh, uh, sustainability. So today, uh, dear colleagues, uh, World Energy Outlook. Yes, we published this uh, last week. Last week. And uh, in this last uh, week, uh, I can tell you that I am very pleased to see the great resonance, great resonance that this publication has created with the government leaders in just one week, media, print, social media, comments uh, we receive, and I am thankful to uh, Lara, who is in charge of uh, view with her colleagues, Lara Kozi, and that because they also broke a record. Again, the uh, World Energy Outlook, as of yesterday, this morning became the best-selling energy book of the world. Again, thanks to Lara and her colleagues. Thank you very much, Lara, to, and your colleagues for the excellent work. Why I thank very much, because it is one of the revenue generators for the International Energy Agency. We are an intergovernmental organization, so many thanks for all these uh, euros, uh, uh, Lara. So uh, we have received a lot of comments uh, from the governments, uh, from uh, media, from uh, NGOs and others, and we are going to receive more in terms of the mails, suggestions, comments, and we are definitely going to look uh, all of them, and uh, in our next World Energy Outlook and the other IEA work, we will uh, take them into consideration if they are serious and uh, appropriate. Now, let me now uh, go to the World Energy Outlook context. Where are we today? Now, when we look at the World Energy Outlook, when we look at the global uh, uh, energy station, ladies and gentlemen, we see deep disparities 
deep disparities. And I wanted to highlight uh, 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 three of them with you. Oil markets. I look at the list of the colleagues uh, participating in this meeting, and uh, there are many uh, distinguished colleagues from the oil and gas companies. They would know much better than me. When you look at the oil markets, there is something very strange or uh, unprecedented. Namely, in the last year, oil prices remain more or less $60 stable, despite Iran as an exporter more or less disappeared. Venezuela, a major producer and consumer, their exports and production completely crashed. There was an attack on Saudi Arabia, the largest oil exporter of the world, unrest in Iraq, second largest producer of OPEC, and the prices remain $60. Almost no change, very plus minus one or two dollars. This is something very unique when you look at the history of oil in the past. Even one of those geopolitical tensions events happened, you would have seen prices to spike. This is one important issue, a disparity, as we say. The second one is on the climate change front. We are seeing, ladies and gentlemen, many governments, and our chairman mentioned the targets. Yes, there are many targets every day. There are some targets to set the targets as well. We also follow those. There are growing scientific body of science that the, we need to reduce the emissions as soon as possible and as deep as possible on one front. But on the other front, we look at the numbers, tells you a completely different story. I am very sorry, but at the IEA, we tell the truth. We look at the numbers, and we tell you what the numbers look like, even though we ourselves don't like those numbers. A couple of them. From Paris Agreement 2015 to today, global emissions totally increase more than one gigaton. And last year, we have seen global emissions reached a historical high, completely different directions. Renewables are growing, but still a big chunk of the renewables growth is not met by solar and wind. Dear colleagues, 20 years ago, the share of fossil fuels in the electricity generation was 63% 20 years ago. And as of today, the share of fossil fuels in the world electricity generation is still 63%. No change whatsoever, to put the things in a context. Another area, transportation sector. Just give you a number. When you open the, open the, uh, uh, the newspapers, everything is about electric cars. They are growing, they are exploding, they are recording, and we are very happy because they are a very important part of the solution. But when we look at the last 10 years, the champion of the transportation sector developments is not the electric cars. It is the SUVs by far. In the year 2010, only 
18% of all the cars sold in the world was SUVs, in the entire world, 18%. And as of last year, 42% of all the cars sold in the world were SUVs. Almost every second car sold in the world was a SUV. Now, what does it mean? On average, one SUV emits 25% more CO2 emissions than the average car. And those SUV development several times, more than several times, compensate the wins benefits we got from the electric cars, which is publicized around the world. But once again, we need electric cars, but SUVs is a very important uh, issue. Did I mention energy efficiency? For me, one of the most important, together with renewables, pillars of the fight against climate change. All the countries, all the governments have set targets for energy efficiency. But ladies and gentlemen, 2018, global energy efficiency improvements in the world was one of the historic lows. Deep, big decline. So therefore, this is important disparity. We should see where we are in terms of climate change today, before looking at the future that we wanted to highlight. Third, many of us talk about the access to energy by everybody. I hope we talk, at least we should think, we should talk about it because today, several hundred million people, 850 million people have no access to electricity and 2.6 billion people use animal waste, agricultural waste for cooking purposes, which in turn have major health implications for women and children in the developing world. There are many colleagues in the energy world who push the uh, woman agenda. I would very much like them to look at this issue very closely. Because it is women and children who die prematurely because of the respiratory diseases caused by primitive cooking. And it is one of the three top premature death reasons in developing countries together with malaria and HIV AIDS. So this is the third disparity we wanted to uh, bring to your attention. Now, we also see that uh, good news, cost reductions happening in main technologies, solar v uh, PV, very good. We expect, I will come in a moment, big declines in offshore wind. Electric cars, very good news, batteries going down. But we still need governments, public sector, to be a part of the picture. Markets alone will not fix our problem. We need governments to be part of the game. Still, not only accelerate the cost reduction, but also push for the new technologies to be a part of the, our future energy mix. Now, the energy world is becoming more and more difficult to make the right choices. I was the day before, yes, in fact, uh, last week with the uh, minister of a, a progressive country in Europe and the world energy outlook. He told me, and the public as well, I, have, I am getting so much resistance from the uh, citizens. 
I like this technology, but it shouldn't be close to my uh, place. It is happening also for renewable technologies. He told us that in the past people gave me to-do list and now people are giving me not to-do list, what I shouldn't do. And the things that I will, I will be able to do is very, very little. So how do we make the right choices? It is the very reason, as Dita mentioned, we make this report with the hope to provide a basis for discussions uh, for the policymakers, for industry, for investors. I am very thankful to investors. A great, great attention for our work from diff different investors uh, for our analysis. Therefore, we make the World Energy Outlook, the flagship publication of the global energy scene. And one thing before I say what we aim to do, I will tell you what we are not aiming to do. We are not, ladies and gentlemen, aiming to forecast the energy developments. We chose a different way. There are colleagues who are doing it uh, every day, but we are not doing it. What we are doing is we have different scenarios to make the policymakers understand if you go this way, this is the result. If you go that way, this is the result. You like it or not. First of all, we look at with the current policies, if the governments do not change their policies as of this year, next 20 years. What happens? We look at that one. Second, we have a scenario which we call stated policy scenario. This looks at the governments. We explore what are the implications of the government's existing policies but also policies that they have in mind. For example, uh, the, in many uh, European countries, targets for renewables, for efficiency in the, within the EU system, not yet legally enacted, but it is in the pipeline to put in place. So we tell the, the world, with the policies you have in mind, and the policies already enacted, you go to this direction, and this is very much in line with many countries, NDCs, and beyond. You will see that even with these policies, we are far, as Mr. Chairman told us in the beginning, we are far from reaching our climate targets. So therefore, we have made our last scenario, which we call the sustainable development scenario, which is fully in line with the Paris targets, but also provides a trajectory for the countries to reduce their air pollution, which is a major issue in uh, developing countries, and uh, also provides a trajectory to, uh, for the developing countries provide energy to its citizens. So three sustainable development goals, which are in our sustainable development scenario, which is attracting great attention across the world, which makes us very happy. Now, I talk about today, and now, instead of going to the uh, future, if I may, I would like to go to history for a moment to understand the future better. You may think it's a history of energy in just two minutes, or you may think it is a bit of a philosophy. Since we are based in, uh, in France, in Paris, we are, I think, entitled to make some philosophy here such as the following. 
when you look at the 100 years ago, global energy system was mainly dominated by coal and wood. Why coal? Those of us who read the books, saw the movies, industrial revolution in the world, especially in uh, Europe and uh, United States, was driven by coal. Then, after the Second World War, we are seeing that the U.S., thanks to the United States, oil is coming in the picture, becoming a part of the game in 1950s, and Venezuela as well. And think about this, 1950s, Venezuela produced more oil than today. Then you move, uh, 1974, an important year, at least for us, it is the, uh, the year that IEA was uh, founded, and we see Middle East, Russia, all becoming the part of the, uh, the global energy mix. And at that time, many people thought, in 1974, there are many U.S. colleagues here, U.S. oil production peaked and about to decline, 1974. And we know that it is a completely different story now. And the year 2000. When we look at the year uh, 2000, we see one important fuel coming in the picture, which is nuclear power. U.S., Japan, and of course uh, Europe becoming the part of the uh, nuclear club. And natural gas... Uh, strongly, uh, mainly driven uh, by uh, Russia. And today, the biggest change between 2000 and 2018 is the strong growth coming from coal, mainly driven by China. Today, we use much more coal, and the share of coal is much higher today compared to the year 2000. If you think differently, uh, please look at these numbers. We use more coal. The share of coal is higher today than in the year uh, 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 2000. And the renewables increased thanks to uh, uh, declining uh, costs of uh, solar and wind and natural gas also uh, growing as well. Now, what about the future? We don't know. But we have with the policies which are existing today and the stated policies the governments have in their mind for renewables, efficiency, pricing, uh, and the others, we see there are two winners. One, renewables by far, especially solar and uh, wind, they are the main uh, winners, and uh, more than 50% uh, of the growth in the global energy mix will come from renewables, and about one-third coming from natural gas. These are the main drivers of the future with the, in our scenario, uh, stated policies scenario. But the things may change depending on the government's, government's technology. And one example is on the oil front, shale oil. Every year I am invited here, I talk about the oil markets uh, because we think it's a very important part of our energy mix and our economies. And our expectation is U.S. shale oil, with the stated policies, is continuing to grow. More than 80% of the 
of the growth in global oil production set to come from United States. And this has major implications. For oil markets, geopolitics, foreign policy, and others, I'd give you one example. We all know that recently, OPEC plus Russia built an uh, important alliance to have an impact on the markets. But what we see is that as a result of this development, plus oil coming from Brazil, Norway, Guyana, and others, the share of OPEC plus Russia is in a steep decline. Yeah, uh, Mid-2000s, we have seen the share of OPEC plus Russia was about 55%, uh, and we see a major decline coming as a result of that, which means, in turn, many things, but one of them, the ability of the traditional oil exporters to manage the markets, market dynamics, including the prices, will be much more limited in the future. Talking about oil, we have an important message to share with you. The 20 years, 20 years switch, we call it. When you look at the last 20 years, oil consumption grew very strongly, and another very important product, electricity did grow, but less than, in absolute terms, less than oil. But when we look at the future, we see the roles of oil and electricity is switching. Oil will still grow, but the growth of oil will slow down around 2030s and we will see a plateau, mainly as a result of efficiency improvement in the cars, increasing share of electric cars and others, but electricity is growing very strongly. I can give you two examples. One is the digitalization. For all of those colleagues who are taking the picture of these slides, digitalization. The second one, in a different part of the world, for example, India, Indonesia, air conditioners are the number one, by far, number one drivers of the electricity consumption. So when we look at the future, we see that from a consumer's perspective, there is a switch in the roles of uh, oil and electricity, which in turn explains why many oil and gas companies, in addition to their core businesses, now having some inroads in the electricity uh, uh, business as well. Natural gas. We think in our stated policy scenario, natural gas will grow, continue to grow, but the driver of the growth is coming from Asia. And China is by far number one. By far number one. And the main reason the growth of China, gas growth, is an environmental reason, which is, unfortunately, many environmentalists don't talk about which is the air pollution. And we see that this demand growth is, some people think, coming from the power sector. No. 
It is not the electricity sector which drives the gas demand growth in Asia. It is mainly the industry sector. Petrochemicals, food, fertilizers, among others, and these are the main drivers. The, because the power sector is squeezed between cheap coal in many countries and ever getting cheaper renewable uh, sources such as solar and wind, and industrial sector is the driver. Now, where will the production come to these countries? Domestically, very uh, little. It will be mainly LNG. LNG will be the, by far the number one driver of gas market in the next years to come. Huge growth. Just look at the numbers this morning. China, 2019, six months LNG imports, again double digit growth. And this is LNG is changing the dynamics of uh, gas markets and in my view, brings a completely new dimension to the European uh, uh, debate uh, as well. Every year, ladies and gentlemen, as uh, many colleagues here follow the, uh, our world energy outlook think uh, 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 in a very loyal way, we look at one region in depth. And this year, we look at Africa. When we talk about energy, Africa doesn't come as a major topic up to now, but we want to bring it for two reasons. One, numbers you will see are impressive, role of Africa in the global energy, and the second, role of energy in Africa's economic development and the stability of the region and the world. The main determinant here is the population. Numbers are really staggering. When uh, Lara showed me the numbers, I was really very, very impressed. Only in three years of time, the population in Africa will be more than China and India, and 2040, about more than two billion people. If you, can, if you want to take one number with you home, between now and 2040, every second person added to global population will be African. Okay? One African, then other, uh, uh, the rest of the world. And we see more than 600 million people will be added to the cities, which needs buildings, cement. You need for all of these people food. So this is a very important uh, dynamic uh, there. And our numbers show that the, this increase in such a short period in the cities is the largest urbanization process in the history, even much bigger than we see in China. And we cannot, as energy people, close our eyes to this because it will affect the energy trends substantially. Now, in terms of oil, it's a big surprise again. Africa, going to Africa's oil demand growth will be even higher than that of China. Very surprising, for two reasons. One, car ownership is very, very low. About one-tenth 
of the global average. The second one, maybe we may forget, the first point I mentioned some time ago, that the women and children are negatively affected from uh, the cook stoves, and they are being replaced more and more by LPG. So LPG and the cars are the two drivers of the oil demand growth. Again, natural gas, strong growth, mainly driven by the domestic production. In the last 10 years, more than 40% of all new gas discovered in the world was in Africa. More than 40%. Egypt, Mozambique, Tanzania, Senegal, South Africa, and elsewhere. Some people tell me, why should the Africans use uh, gas? Of course they will use gas. It's the joke. They, you need to build buildings. For the buildings, you need cement. For cement, you cannot build cement. Uh, you cannot manufacture cement just with wind. You need higher temperature, heat. Fertilizers, you need to feed these people. Therefore, you need a gas in some cases. But the biggest growth is coming from, thanks God, from uh, renewables. And there is a huge, huge, huge opportunity to grow. One very heartbreaking number I am going to give you. 40% of the global solar potential is in Africa. But only 1% of the solar PV installation is in Africa. 40% potential, 1% implementation. This is heartbreaking. And it is the reason why in our report we have provided for 11 key countries a roadmap in Africa how they can make most out of the renewable sources including solar, wind, hydropower, among others, working very closely with those uh, countries and the colleagues from those countries and their ministries. So I am, ladies and gentlemen, I am optimistic about uh, Africa's energy future. Talking about solar, when we look at globally, we see that the global world electricity system is changing very quickly. Coal still flat. In some countries we see a decline in Europe in the uh, United States, but some countries there is an increase and it is a flat uh, line. We see gas growing in terms of electricity generation contribution. Nuclear, more or less stable. By the way, for the colleagues who are following the nuclear trends uh, closely, I can give you one surprising fact. My colleague Brent Wenner told me yesterday that the this year, world nuclear electricity generation will be the highest in the history. Okay. So after Fukushima, it went down and it rebounded and it will be higher than before Fukushima even, just to put it in the records. Hydro is growing. 
China again, as we speak now, building the second largest dam, dam in the world, which the first one is also in China, uh, a, a big one in also Africa coming strongly. Wind, very strong growth. I will come in a moment on the offshore wind, but the biggest growth comes from solar PV. Solar PV, solar is the star. Solar is the star because it is growing very strongly, which makes us uh, very uh, happy, mainly because of the reduction in the cost, but as important as that, if not more important, with the government policies. So this is the picture uh, we are uh, seeing, and this is uh, definitely good news, but is it good enough to address our climate challenges? No. I will come to that uh, in a moment. And this growth in solar and wind is good, but it also poses some challenges for the electric systems. We have some uh, colleagues who work on the electricity regulation, part of the uh, picture, and uh, colleagues from the Commission. I wanted to tell you what problem we are facing in the electricity markets around the world. In the past, life was very easy. You had thermal power plants, push the button, they generate electricity, you can go to bed. On, this, on the consumption side, electricity consumption patterns were more or less same. It comes high around 7, 8 o'clock, goes down during the night, etc. But they are both changing. With the digitalization of our systems, electricity consumption patterns are changing, and with the increasing share of renewables, solar and wind, we don't know what the nature commands the availability of solar and wind. So they have to match between the demand of electricity and generation of electricity becoming a real issue. What Laura and her colleagues did is they look at 8,760 hours around the major markets, how they moved together last year. When did demand go up? When did the, how did the availability of solar and wind? Now, 15th of July, 2018. Does it tell you anything? Maybe not, but some of the colleagues who are French, it should tell them something, at least, which is the World Cup final, football. What happened in the World Cup final is the electricity consumption skyrocketed around 9 o'clock compared to 8 o'clock one hour ago. Why? People turned on the lights, first of all. They went to make a tea, the kettle, a, a, a tisane, and some of them who didn't want like the tisane were something strong, opened the refrigerator, took a, a glass of milk, and we have seen the electricity consumption picked up. And unfortunately, at that time, there was no wind. And no sun, of course. And we had to ramp up about 25% of the existing uh, capacity, which is equal to one France today in one hour of time. It's a big, big issue. And with the increasing share of renewables, you will see in a moment, it will be a bigger issue if we are able to do that. And it is not only Europe. The same thing happened in India. And this time, 
the finals of the Premier Cricket match in India. So cricket is more important than football. What happened is that people went, came home, turned on the light, turned on the air conditioner, and there was no sun. This is a major issue we are facing and as international energy agency, as the energy watchdog of the world, we have to bring it to the attention of the policymakers before it is too late. Because we also see the opposite. There may be a significant amount of wind and solar available, and then you have the issue of curtailment. More emissions, money is wasted. And what we have done, we look at all key regions, and we see major fluctuations here of today. With the increasing share of solar and wind, this will be even much higher. And therefore, our advice to government leaders has been since one week and will be so in the next days to come, is governments. If you think by giving support to renewables, your job is done, you are completely wrong. It is a half of the job. The first half of the job is the, to push the renewables, which is very important, but the second, to integrate them in our power systems and to create flexibilities so that we don't lose money and we don't have blackouts and we don't use uh, the, uh, the great role of renewables in terms of the saving, uh, reducing uh, emissions. And therefore, we need flexibility policies such as energy storage, batteries, demand-side policies and others that we are discussing with the TSOs. Next year, IEA will make a major study. I have commissioned a big study on energy security of the electricity security of the world. Looking at this issue, cyber security, which is becoming, becoming more and more important for the grids uh, we have around the world. And the third, impact of climate change on our grids and the power systems. Now, ladies and gentlemen, coming to a point which is Again, Lara and uh, 40 colleagues of hers made a big study on many slides, but this is my favorite, because I believe this is the biggest blind spot in our climate change debate today, and unfortunately is not getting the attention that it uh, deserves. Now, today in the world, we have about 2,000 100 something gigawatts of coal power plants and 170 gigawatts are under construction. At the moment, they are now working in this. Altogether, 2,250 gigawatts in the world. And when you look at it a bit closely, a big chunk of it is subcritical. What does subcritical means? Very, very inefficient. And again, big part of it is in developing Asia. Now, the critical issue here, please do not forget this. Criti a critical issue is those power plants, coal plants, are only 12 years old. 
very, very young fleet, which means a coal plant's lifetime is 40, 50 years. They will be with us under normal operation life, as it was the case in Belgium, UK, Germany, United States. They will be with us until 2040, 2050. And those coal plants today, 2,250 gigawatts, is the, by far the single largest CO2 emission source in the world. Single largest CO2 emission source in the world. Now, getting even more striking in my view. Even if we don't build any single new coal plants next 40 years, which is a completely implausible assumption, but let's put it this way. Even if we don't build one single new coal plant 40 years, in the year 2050, the emissions from the existing coal plants will be still the number one source of CO2 emissions in the world. It's very clear, at least for me. Which means, in the absence of intervening the existing coal plants, we have no chance whatsoever to reach our targets, including those told us by the IPCC 1.5 degrees Celsius, Paris Agreement, and others. No chance whatsoever. So what should we do? As IEA, we are not very good in tweeting, but we are very good in looking at the real problems and try to solve them. So we look at all the existing coal plants one by one in the world. What can we do? We have three suggestions for this. One, using a technology called carbon capture, utilization, and storage. A critical technology, it didn't take off yet since years, but it is very critical, especially for those young power plants. Or repurposing some of the coal plants to help to support the variable renewables in terms of electricity security. Or in some countries, early retirements. Here, I am very sorry, but I cannot put, for example, I know that some countries have the past coal alliance, very good move, especially Europe, Canada, and the others, but the economic development level in Bangladesh or Indonesia or India is not the same like these countries. In Europe, if you are phasing out the coal, which is very good, you should, uh, if you don't need it, but that coal plant in Europe is providing electricity to the fourth television set in the kitchen. But in Indonesia, it is providing electricity to the refrigerator for the children, for the parents, to keep the medication for their children. We cannot put them in the same basket. 
So early retirement is something that which is a very important issue need to be uh, taken care of very, very uh, carefully. Now, in the World Energy Outlook this year, we also focused on an important technology, which is, in my view, a very promising technology, offshore wind. When I decided to, to make a major work on offshore wind, many people, some of our uh, colleagues told me, what are you doing? The share of offshore wind in the global electricity generation today only 0.3%. You are putting so much of the IES resources to such a technology, which is not even 1%. But we went ahead, and our numbers show you that in a carbon-neutral Europe, for example, offshore wind can be very, very important. When we look at the European electricity mix in the future, in a carbon-neutral world, which is in line with our sustainable development scenario, which fully uh, reflects the Paris targets, we see that the nuclear, natural gas, and coal all declining, bioenergy and hydro more or less the same, solar continues to grow, onshore wind continues to grow but slows down, but offshore wind becomes number one source of electricity generation in Europe. Number one source of electricity generation in Europe. This is amazing. Why? Very simple. We expect huge cost reductions. Second, it doesn't face the sum of the public opposition that for example, onshore sometimes uh, uh, faces. And third, we see that technology can provide a big, big leap forward in terms of cost reductions and others. Plus, offshore wind will not only help decarbonization of the power systems, but through, by providing hydrogen, can help to reduce the emissions in the much more difficult sectors such as uh, heat, such as industry, and uh, beyond. I know that uh, we made the analysis. Many oil and gas companies today, with the experience in the offshore oil and gas drilling, are also looking at uh, this option. And my expectation, ladies and gentlemen, is that some of you may remember, I don't know since how many years I come here, but 10 years ago we said, before anybody in the world, we are going to see a silent revolution in the United States, North America, highlighting the shale revolution and that silent revolution became loud and became real. Now I'm going to tell you one more thing. The cost reduction we have seen in the shale industry and solar PV, we will be seeing a similar trend in offshore wind cost reduction in the future. Now let me finish uh, my slides with one very important one about the, the emissions 
and what does the IEA recommend to address our climate problems? So when you look at the last 10 years, global emissions increase on average about 1% per year. Every year we say next year we will see decline because the government says so statements, targets, policies, but they are increasing. If the trends continue, like 1%, this is really, really very, very bad news. But if you look at the existing policy and stated policies, such as the pushing renewables, efficiency, not yet enacted, but the governments have in pipeline in their minds, we see that the temperature increase will be still about three degrees Celsius. And this is even beyond the NDCs the governments have. NDCs plus many. But please, before I show you the next slide, there is only a big effort needed coming from the current trends to the stated policies trends. We are still not there. So the blue one is not taken for granted, by the way. That take it easy. So this is not granted. Now, but what does the IEA do? IEA shows the world what we can do in order to be in line with the Paris and other international climate targets. We have to have a sustainable development scenario. And what does it need? It needs three things, basically. Efficiency, renewables, and other technologies. Which other technologies? All of them. All of them. We do not have, ladies and gentlemen, the luxury, the luxury to exclude any of those options uh, here, you see. If you reduce one of them, you have to increase the other one. Some people don't like technology X, the other dislikes uh, technology Y, but we have to, we need all of those technologies. We make this not a global level. We make it on a country-by-country country basis, based on their resource endowment, existing technological uh, status, their government plans and everything. This is the picture that we are coming up with. So what we say is that uh, there is no single or a simple solution to reach our climate goals. No single or a simple solution. It is not as easy to summarize in the 140-something characters in the tweet. It is a big issue, and therefore you really have to look at it to understand and to see that we need all of them if we are really serious to address our climate problems. Now, to finish, we think uh, that the, the, our policy responses, as our chairman said in the beginning, are far from being enough to address the climate problem and other energy-related uh, challenges uh, we are facing today. Oil and gas landscape is changing, with the shale coming, but also we believe oil and gas industry, there are many colleagues here, my appeal uh, is uh, to them, oil and gas industry is facing increasing demands how the energy, new energy and climate policies are going to affect their business portfolios and how 
they are going to contribute to the fight to reach our sustainable development targets. Solar and wind are growing uh, very uh, strongly. It's a very good news, but it is far from being enough as well. We need to look at the existing infrastructure, especially coal, more than 2,000 gigawatts what we have today. A legacy issue is with us. Africa, as I said, I am optimistic about Africa for two reasons. One, the solar and wind, which is, and hydro, which is a lot of available in Africa, comes at a time when it is cheap, cost went down, and when many governments now take the access to energy seriously. Kenya, five years ago, 25% of people in Kenya had access to electricity. Now it is 83%. Ghana, more than 80% in a very short period of time. Both of the countries with access to electricity, everybody 100% in a few years of time and many other examples. So I am uh, optimistic about uh, Africa's energy future and I believe the developments in Africa will surprise the pessimists. Finally, uh, to finish the, uh, my uh, words, the, uh, we believe all, everybody has a role to play to address our uh, global energy and environmental problems, but the main part of the responsibility lies with the governments. We think the public sector needs to play an important role by providing the right framework for the right uh, decisions. In the absence of that, to reach the climate targets will not be possible. Therefore, our appeal to governments, targets are good, intentions are good, but we need legs and concrete policies to reach those targets. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. What can I say? Each year you become more passionate and more political every time, honestly. I have to say, this year, um, you couldn't have wanted for more of a effective presentation that really kind of doesn't pull its punches about what the political choices are for the world. But also, I think, again, highly political in that the point you make of, I thought your slide, your, you know, your, your reference to some of the disparities and some of the dilemmas in the context is that despite everything we've seen over the past 10, 15 years, actually, certain behaviours haven't changed in relation to coal. Isn't that fascinating? And uh, I think that we, whilst we can say a lot about the uh, transition that we need to face, it's absolutely clear that certain behavior change, which is not at the citizen level, it's actually at the level of government and producer that needs to change quite dramatically if we're going to see a change that, that's required. I'm not going to say much more. I've just, I just found that heady. I just, there's so much in there. I loved your slide where, could we, I mean, is it possible to have a slide back, the one we're not able to, where you can see the different scenarios and what's actually required to get to the sustainable development uh, goals is fascinating. But I want to open it up to yourselves in terms of any key questions you have for Fatih on the basis of what he's said. Anyone wants to 
kickoff. Surely, ah, sorry. You'll have to excuse me, you really have to wave because I've got these lights beaming in my face, which is really difficult. It's the lady here in the grey jacket. Uh, Irene Di Padua from Solarit Europe. I have a very short question, and it's what about heating and cooling? What about the thermal sector? Because you showed us that a lot has been doing for electricity, and it's very good, but what can we do so about renewable heat solution and uh, the other sectors which are not power in the energy outlook? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Just a couple of them. There we have a lady at the back. There, there you go. And then the gentleman. And then we'll finish. We'll go on to the next. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, thank you for, for sharing this uh, impressive analysis. I'm Flore Gonsolin, um, talking on behalf of CEFIC, European Chemical Industry. And I have uh, two questions, if I may. Um, the first um, is uh, on the fact that the European Union has a strong uh, track record on uh, promoting renewables and uh, alternative energy sources um, as an energy input. But I think what transpires uh, in, your, uh, in the World Energy Outlook and also the very good uh, hydrogen report that you published recently is that feedstock uh, will also become increasingly a relevant issue. So do you think we are doing enough uh, on, in that field? And the second question, uh, if you could refine a little bit on um, Africa, which are the parts of Africa that are really driving the, the changes that uh, you mentioned? Thank you. Interesting question again. Gentleman here in the white shirt. Thank you. Juno Zikman with the Reuters. Um, I got a question about the transparency, about the 1.5 targets. And uh, so uh, there was a message from climate scientists, investors, and campaigners who wrote to you about uh, asking to make a fully transparent, the 1.5 degree scenario, uh, a centerpiece for the next world energy outlook. Do you have anything to say about that? That's all. Then we're going to go to the other speakers, then we'll have a much more of an opportunity to have further questions. I think they are all uh, very good yes. questions. Let me start with the colleague from uh, Reuters. What was your name? So I couldn't catch it. Yeah. So uh, we have, uh, as I said, we published our report a week, uh, not even a week ago. We have received many uh, comments, uh, suggestions from uh, different uh, people, and it goes from different ways. Uh, we are going to look at all of them, and if they are serious and if they are useful, not for us, but also for the, the fight against uh, climate change and others, we will take into consideration in the World Energy Outlook or other IEA publications. Uh, continuing the uh, colleague from the uh, uh, chemical sector, petrochemicals are the main uh, drivers of the uh, oil demand uh, growth uh, still, mainly as a result of need for plastics. Some people think that the plastics are only this uh, nylon bag we uh, get from uh, um, uh, Monoprix or somewhere. It is only 1%. Plastics are everywhere in our uh, lives, from the toothbrush to the electric cars, from electric cars to the wind turbines, from wind turbines to the tires and everywhere. So as long as we don't have a reliable alternative to petroleum products, we think the, uh, the oil uh, demand in the pet chem industry will uh, uh, grow. But what we see, a growing number of alternative fuels being part of the uh, game in the pet chem sector. In Africa, there are some countries I, I mentioned making very good uh, 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 progress, 
This includes, as I mentioned, Kenya, uh, Ghana, uh, South Africa, uh, Ethiopia, uh, among others. And there are some countries which are still, which are still not making a lot of progress, such as uh, uh, some countries with huge petroleum and gas, natural gas uh, resources, they are still not uh, making uh, use of them. Why I am hopeful is the following. When I talk with the ministers in those uh, countries, I am seeing that uh, there is a growing determination to address the energy excess. Because years and years, uh, as also Mr. Chairman mentioned, it is not only an issue of money, it is also an issue of governance. But this is being handled by having good governments and, this is important, and people are demanding now in Africa. The next country has now access to electricity, but I don't. They are demanding, they are pushing the governments. So this is a, a political change that makes me hopeful about uh, Africa. The renewable heat, uh, yes, uh, we are seeing renewables growing very strongly in the electricity generation. Huge growth, and it will grow, and as we have seen in our uh, numbers, especially solar and wind, but in terms of uh, penetrating the heat sector, we do not see enough move yet. Why? Very simple. We do not see enough policy support from uh, governments, which in turn doesn't turn into technological uh, uh, progress uh, there. But without, without pushing the renewables and the providing heat, we may not be able to reach our targets because electric sector is entire power sector is responsible only 38% of the emissions. There's more than 60% coming outside of the power sector, which needs to be decarbonized as well. The integration of renewables there is uh, uh, of paramount importance, and for this, we need uh, definite specific policies uh, across the world. Thank you very much. Now, can I invite our other speakers to come? Andreas, Boyana, Antonella, please join me on the stage. <clears throat> Okay, so what we have for you today is some of the key industries that have been reflected in the report uh, to be able to give a view from their perspective about what's required. It's key and it's clear from what uh, Fatih is saying is that there's an absolutely essential role both for industry to step up and do things differently, but actually for government to lead the way and government policy to lead the way. So I want to start with yourself, Andreas, from the, um, you know, Siemens Gamesa, you're the chief executive officer there uh, for offshore wind. What, from your perspective, and I think learning here is interesting in terms of what we've seen about the charts, about what's happened in the past 20 years, but also what happened to renewables in the past 15, that based on what you've learned to date, what do you need to see happening for you to be able to accelerate at the le level and the pace that's required if we're going to even meet the st stated, let alone stated, but also the, the sustainable uh, de uh, goal, de development goal scenario? Over to you. You need to get a microphone, sorry. Um, I have to pay, first pay my highest respect to, to Fatih. When you run a, a company like mine, 6,000 people, 3 billion, you think you are a big fish. But if you see the total energy world from Africa over the last 100 years that, that Fatih uh, always uh, presents every year, um, you are suddenly very small fish. And I, I checked, you mentioned offshore wind on minute 37. 
The good thing was he then said we will be the number one electricity providers in Europe in a few years to come. So um, that made me feel, feel good again. So, uh, but generally, I find your report and also your knowledge always extremely impressive. So um, when, when I'm asked what do you do, I normally do this here. And I hope you can see that I just hold my phone up. On the back of my phone is an offshore wind turbine. Um, it explains a little bit easier uh, what we do, and, and we are a young industry. Um, we are only about 25 years old since the first uh, offshore wind farm was ever built. Um, we've brought down the cost in the last few years. I think Freddie, you mentioned that from 15 to 10 to 5 cents per kilowatt hour, and I think at home you pay around 25 to 30. So uh, there you can see what share. Um, we've also increased uh, the turbines uh, quite a lot. On the other hand, we're going through a, a deep change at the moment. And what, what can we learn or what would we like to see in the future is, is um, a very simple thing, which is clear, united framework. And clear means we can do a lot in terms of technology. The technology is there to make the turbines even more efficient, to make the cost of, of offshore wind even cheaper. But we need to have a, a clear framework what they should look like. And just to give you an example, if every country in Europe, let alone in, in the world, and we are going now from Europe to Taiwan to the US, um, defines different rules, is extremely complicated to industrialize an industry. And if these rules for, the, the, let's say, the distance between two wind turbines offshore would be the same, or about the same, that would help us a lot because then planning and design and everything is much easier. And the other aspect that uh, Fatih also mentioned but, um, is how do we get renewables and especially offshore wind into the electricity grids? I drive a lot from Hamburg to Denmark and, and Schleswig-Holstein, the northern part of Germany, is extremely wind-rich. Therefore, you have many wind turbines there. And it hurts my eye that they are curtailed so many times. They're just standing still. You know that power must be generated elsewhere right now, but um, instead of using the... It's, it's free. The turbines are there. You don't need to build extra turbines. The problem is you can't get the power from Schleswig-Holstein into the load centers. And that problem, of course, gets only even bigger if you put 1,000 megawatt offshore wind parks, real big power stations on the coastlines, and, uh, and then you have to get the power either to, in, in Germany, in, in the UK, to the, to the demand centers. And these two things would make our life and would probably be the biggest learnings. We have to get that fast in place, then we can exploit all the opportunities the, uh, that are there in offshore wind. So these are the two things I would like to mention. Excellent. It's interesting. I mean, thank you for your sh brevity. Um, let me use the, the minute and a half you've left for your own contribution to ask, me to ask you a question. I mean, it's clear that what we saw from that is very, one of his, you know, it was a moment of, um, you know, humor, but actually quite serious, is that when you have large sporting events, clearly we're buggered. And from your perspective, what, do you, what, do you, what would you like to see to have that energy mix take place? What does government need to do to ensure that we're able to have the, the, the capacity that you're able to produce, but to be available at the times that we need it? Um, yeah, first, 
the, the projects that we do currently are extremely long-term projects. We are now planning projects for our, our customers uh, and the whole industry um, that are out in five to ten years. And I think the good thing is that allows the governments also to get their plans and they get their act together by, um, uh, for example, establishing the grid that, are, that is required. It doesn't help me if I bid, um, or did anyone, if we build more offshore wind farms that are then curtailed or cannot produce because the, the power cannot flow. And if we combine that planning um, across Europe, because Europe is a fantastic um, continent in terms of wind, but also because the countries are so nicely connected or connectable. If that was done in the, in the right way, I think you can exploit and we could be much faster than we are currently. But do you think you have the capacity, would, would, if the policy environment, let's say the new Green Deal comes about and you know, the new president says, well, voila, I'm going to try and create a rule book across Europe that makes it easier to, you know, to, to, to uh, transcend barriers of, of, of national borders. But actually, we're going to really kind of move uh, in this territory. Do you feel there's enough investment and capacity to create the kind of energy that we require under Fatih's scenario for an actual sustainable yeah. scenario. I, I see no problem because I need two things for that. If, if the policy were in place, um, money in these investments, and I, can, I talk quite often to, to large banks or uh, investors, they say money is currently not the problem to get projects off the ground. Mm. Um, and then the second is, um, that is closer to what, uh, what we do, is the supply chain. Can we build more turbines? Mm. Can we uh, find all the resources, all the equipment? That wouldn't be a problem because we have three, four years to ramp up. Okay. I see absolutely no problem in, in, in exploiting that. Just to give you a number, we are currently installing around three to five gigawatts a year. Um, make it round numbers, that's three to 500 turbines in a few years. We expect that to be 15 gigawatts, um, if not more, that's then a thousand. Mm. The turbines get bigger, we are much more efficient. Um, we have at the moment more than enough capacity for now, and we can expand that. So that is not the problem. If we see the demand, we can easily follow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. So clearly what we need to be looking for um, in the new Green Deal uh, is going to have to be one of the scenarios that we've heard today, but actually seeing a very different uh, approach to the rule book in, in Europe around how we make energy efficiency work and energy trans uh, the energy union work in a way that um, reduces the burden of bureaucracy. I want to turn to Gas if I may. Bayana, thank you very much for being here. You, you have a number of roles, but I'm, quite, I'm particularly interested in what we've heard about the role of gas in the World Energy Outlook this year. Um, what needs to happen for you, but also the efforts that are being made to move in the direction that we go to much more um, decarbonised gas, if you like, and the infrastructure that's required to achieve that? Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I'm very happy to be part of the official launch of the Outlook for 2019 and to have a possibility to bring here also the perspective coming from the gas industry and the gas infrastructure. Going to your question, indeed, uh, the way that we are going to use the gas infrastructure in future is going to be changed. The, um, uh, so, the gas infrastructure is a very flexible and reliable tool which have a possibility to transport and store a large 
amount of gases through longer distances and this specific flexibility of the gas system is going to be a key tool for achieving the new energy system which is going to be very much renewable based. Also, the gases that we are going to put in the gas infrastructure are going to be different. And in this perspective, our members are working very much on providing different uh, innovative techniques, on putting into consideration all different uh, gazelles energy, starting from biomethane, which is sustainably produced within and outside uh, our borders, also moving to green hydrogen, which is produced uh, from exceed electricity from uh, wind farms and also PVAs installations, which we heard that it's, uh, it's a key for the moment, and also blue hydrogen, which is produced uh, from natural gas and synthetic methane. We, as Gas Naturally, were always uh, advocating for increasing and upscaling renewable and uh, decarbonized gases. And then this together with, uh, let's say, having an integration between uh, the gas and electricity system is the most cost-efficient way of achieving the European climate neutrality uh, goals. Indeed, we are very happy to see that uh, this year the outlook, uh, together also with many studies which were actually published in this year, are showing and recognizing the very big importance of the gas infrastructure for transforming big amounts of energy and supporting also to decarbonize uh, also these industries which are very heavily to be decarbonized and uh, also uh, having a recognition of the importance of uh, low carbon hydrogen and also biomethane in this perspective. In this context, we very much welcome also some of the recommendations which are coming from the outlook related to the policymakers, actually to uh, introduce low carbon gas standards and intensives. For the moment, there are 45 let me be explicit in this, 43 renewable hydrogen projects and 15 power to methane projects, which are in a very different stage of development all across uh, Europe. We think that what is extremely important and necessary is that uh, these projects are very much supported and um, uh, already on feasibility and uh, development uh, phase. Because uh, one of the studies of Navigant, which is actually mentioned by the Outlook, is already reporting a very serious cost reduction of the technologies, which are coming from, of course, from the maturity of, uh, of the technologies, of expected uh, cost reduction of uh, exceed electricity and uh, maturity, which comes with, uh, let's say, more efficiency of, of uh, these uh, new technologies. So basically, when we talk about the new technologies, we do not see that there is only a support needed in R&D perspective. We also see that there is a need that these new technologies should be supported and have an intensive uh, possibility to access a commercial framework as well. Mm -hmm. Also within the European blueprint of uh, guarantees of origin uh, and also on market-based uh, support. So basically, when we talk about uh, European gas infrastructure, that should be uh, the, the using of the existing gas infrastructure, let's say, um, with its possibility to transport and store a large amount of gases, should be uh, really benefiting rather than building a new electricity line that would definitely bring us to a serious cost reduction. The study by Navigant, which I already mentioned, uh, this year was actually reporting um, 
on a scenario which is, uh, let's say, compared to the, um, let's say, a low scenario of, uh, of gas, it's talking about that the combination between the usage of gases with the existing gas infrastructure is actually leading to 217 billion of uh, euro in an annual basis across the European value chain by uh, uh, European energy value chain by 2050. Also, there is another study which is important to mention here, where zero carbon gas scenario, when it's taken into consideration a pathway with a combination between CCS, hydrogen, and also biomethane, mm -hmm. is reporting for uh, 1.150 saving. Uh, uh, by, by 20, 2050 compared to all electric scenario pathway. This demonstrates, and this is a quite an important point, that there is a serious need of recognition on a very stable and sustainable financial taxonomy in Europe, which will actually bring us uh, very much forward to reach positive decarbonization targets. There is a very heavily debate which was uh, happening in Brussels in relation what is proper in relation to the fin finance in the European gas infrastructure when we talk about uh, the sustainable taxonomy. And in this perspective, again, we very much re welcome the recommendations which are coming from uh, the outlook this year that when we talk about investments, it's extremely important to look on the projects which are taking into consideration security of supply and uh, also um, environmental goals together. We are also very much looking forward on working together with the European Commission on demonstrating how the existing gas infrastructure and the combination of different kinds of gases can contribute to the benefit of the European citizens in the best cost-effective pathway, and that this scenario is uh, the best way to achieve the decarbonisation process. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, if I take one of the big takeaways is that you, you, we really need to be able to think about balancing uh, the twin goals of competitiveness, if I can call it that, uh, and part of that is the infrastructure development, but also maintaining our green credentials. From what you know right now and um, the development of the Green Deal, that's, that's going to be coming out, have you had any conversations with people in the, in the department or with the Commissioner about what you need? I'd ask you, ask you the same question as well, Andreas, if you can tell me, think about that as well, because it'd be interesting to know whether you as industry wireless have been brought into the conversations. Indeed, uh, and I think uh, also the Director General of the Commission already mentioned, so basically the European Green Deal is going to, to happen. Uh, what uh, our conversations with, uh, with the European Commission in this perspective and policymakers in this perspective are that uh, this Green Deal is going to be very much accel accelerated. The speed is going to be very much accelerated. Okay. So the goals from our side is really to showcase uh, the importance of, let's say, the big investments that was uh, already done in relation to the European gas infrastructure. Of course, there is very much importance to showcase that this uh, very old-fashioned industry is one of the main drivers when we are talking about technologies. We are talking here about power to gas. We are talking about CCS technology, which is a key. And actually, the gas industry is having a privilege to actually operate such kind of uh, such kind of a new tool. Uh, uh, 
biomethane, all this, uh, all this perspective, but it's extremely important also when we look on, let's say, different uh, um, um, regions of Europe mm -hmm. to take into consideration the important role of security of supply, which shouldn't be forgotten when we talk about of this course. extreme acceleration of the speed related to the Green Deal. And we see that there's a, ro a lot of... Uh, how to say, insights that uh, uh, gas will pay, will pay still a very important role in this process. No, indeed. But if I, if I impress you, were you able to talk about numbers, targets? Were you were able to talk about money? Was that kind of part of the conversation without revealing too much in terms of the Green Deal? Did you get any sense that you were being heard? Well, in any case, the energy transition will not happen without cost. Indeed, in our perspective, uh, uh, there's a lot of investments which are made into the technologies, for mm. sure, but uh, our members are doing this. Mm. And uh, the, the gas infrastructure actually is very well, in, a, in any case, uh, already placed there. So there will be a need for small investment only for some kind of uh, extension mm. here and there. Mm. But that's why we are reporting that uh, mm. a, in a cost-efficient perspective, mm. we should be the most suitable one. Indeed, indeed. But yours is also the most political one, because it does security of supply. The geopolitics of the East, what happens in the Balkans elsewhere, it becomes a, a huge, huge major issue. Andres, have you had any conversations with the Commission about the new Green Deal and numbers or, and, you know, I would have thought, given the report that we've just heard, I would have thought you'd have been brought into the conversation. Can you reveal any? Um, actually, here in, in Brussels, it's done by, by our member, uh, by the organization that represents us, Win Europe under, under Charles Dixon. But we had two, one unsuccessful and one successful uh, talk with, um, with governments. I'm not sure here in Brussels, probably UK is not most popular at the moment, but um, they have structured a sector deal that combines the, the um, interest of the offshore industry in terms of um, local content, um, employment, um, um, R&D. So that worked extremely well. The counter um, example is unfortunately my own home country, Germany, which has uh, managed to get the wind industry to a grinding halt. So we as a company have good and bad examples. We do that mostly regional. In Brussels, it's done by Wind Europe. Tell me, before you give the mic, because it's interesting, Germany's a big influence in the EU. It's a big driver, both in terms of energy consumption, but also the political role it plays. Say a little bit more about what you've just said, about the fact that it's kind of brought... Um, particularly, I think given the role that offshore wind and wind power has to play in our future energy mix. The... I think Germany, together with Denmark, that is well known, have been the, the front runners in, in, in the wind industry, uh, in, in, in the industry. They did uh, the first project, they're very famous uh, manufacturers from these two countries. And also Germany did an extremely good job at allowing uh, the industry to flourish at the beginning with the, um, with the political framework, the, the famous AEG. Um, also, with the first um, offshore wind projects, were, were heavily supported by the German government that allowed us to do ex extremely essential R&D work. Um, now that has come for, for different reasons now to, um, to a little bit of a dip the last few years. And I think also with the targets that the German government has set now for 2030, um, that will get better again, but nevertheless, uh, we have gone through a kind of valley. And I can only hope that um, Germany takes back this leading role um, in the industry. Okay. That was slightly diplomatic of you. You haven't really said about the politics that are taking place in Germany, but that, that's not a problem at all. I just want to, before I move on to Antonella, are there any questions to our two industry 
Wallace, if I can say that. Gentleman there with his hand waving. Thank you. Uh, Paul Bossens, 100 ah. terawatt hour. Uh, we have a lot of targets, you said. Uh, decarbonization, cost-effectiveness, and energy security. So there is one energy source, nuclear energy, that fulfills all these items. And uh, why do you think that in Europe this solution is not considered? Uh, the more that we see that other countries do it, uh, Russia, China, India, even Africa, you mentioned Kenya, they are all looking to nuclear energy. So why does that not happen in Europe? Is your question to Fatih? Yes. Yes. Okay. Should I? Okay. So uh, now uh, in nuclear energy, we see two different trends. You are completely right. In US and Europe, because of policy and some market uh, reasons, it is declining. But uh, it is growing in uh, China, Russia, and India. Now, United States has been the number one nuclear power in the world since uh, four decades. But if the policies do not change, only in seven years of time, China will overtake United States as the number one nuclear technology provider. This is uh, our, our capacity uh, in terms of capacity and then, of course, technology exporter. For me, I believe to phase out uh, nuclear power is a government decision, like in Germany and other countries, but one should think twice by saying goodbye to a technology which generates electricity without emitting emissions. I can understand that in Europe and United States, building new nuclear power plants may not be easy. I understand for, for political or for uh, 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 economic reasons, but the lifetime extensions of the existing power plants is a very economic uh, thing to do. It is one of the cheapest sources of zero carbon technologies, the lifetime extensions of the existing uh, nuclear power plants. And uh, in my view, if the share of uh, nuclear, which is about 25% in the advanced world today, if there are no policy changes, they will go down to single digits very soon, which will in turn make the uh, 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 reaching our climate targets more uh, difficult. So we don't see the appetite today in many European countries and in the US from the industry to build new nuclear power plants, but at least the lifetime ex extensions of the existing plants is very important if we are serious to fight against climate change. My Thank personal view. And I pass to the, my offshore colleague now. Mm, uh, I, I agree with, with extensions, but um, if, um, also for, for new build, uh, just for economical reasons. And the UK at the moment is setting a good example of that. There's a, a new um, a nuclear power station plant with um, uh, guaranteed tariffs escalation over time. And if you compare that with the latest auction round that was there for around six gigawatts of, uh, of offshore wind, 
the UK government had assigned a certain budget for that and expected that this budget will be used. And due to the auction mechanism and the, the increasing competitors of offshore wind, and these projects will be subsidy free. So you can't build offshore wind at extremely low cost. We don't need subsidies. The problem actually what the UK government has now, what do we do now in the future? If there's no steering, no subsidies, and subsidies are one way of steering policy, that's not needed, what do we do now? We have just auctioned out six gigawatts, that's more or less four nuclear power stations for subsidy-free offshore. Why would you build nuclear then? Indeed, it's a market after all. Can I just ask any, further, any, any views, any other questions, reactions to what we've heard before I move on to Antonella? Lady over there. My name is uh, Caroline Kamerbeek. I'm from DNVGL Energy. Mm -hmm. I have a very different question. I don't know exactly where it fits in, but you saw that behavioral change is one of the, Absolutely. Of the big, uh, big issues, and I think also connected to the fact that governments need to take the lead because mm -hmm. governments listen to the citizens. So what is um, Fatih's view and maybe also Antonella's view on what can we do in Europe, but also globally, in, in working on this behavioral change of citizens? Okay, great. Start with yourself. And then I'll bring you in, Antonella, for your, for your contribution as a part of this piece. Okay, so I think the behavioral change is uh, definitely an important part of the sustainable development scenario, and even more important, if we want to go to a, a 1.5 degrees trajectory. So uh, this is uh, driven, or should be driven, once again, not only uh, by advertisement in televisions or the school pedagogical uh, uh, means, this should be done, but also there should be some price and other incentives for the people to change their uh, behaviors. When you look at the 1.5 degrees scenario that we have at the, in the World Energy Outlook, we see that the to go from a sustainable development scenario to deeper cut, 1.5, it is not in the power of energy sector. You need other things to, uh, uh, to change, such as the, 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 the attitude of the people, how they live, how they move, how, how they uh, dress. These all need to change if we want to go to a, a very, very deep cuts beyond the changes what we have in the power sector, which are all uh, uh, documented in our uh, website. Behavioral change is a key issue, but it is not only a moral issue. I believe in addition to the moral uh, issue, it should be supported by the governments through financial and regulatory incentives. Um don't dust yourself, but the, before I move to you, Antonella, and I promise you I'm going to come to you. From the two industries, I've not heard a lot about consumers, because on the balance of things, it, people keep on saying, oh, it's about the citizen changing behavior, but actually we need to have industry change behavior too. And at last year's event, we heard very eloquently from someone who said that actually, if the system could wire itself around citizens much more, much more effectively in terms of not having to uh, work really hard in the complexity of becoming much more uh, energy efficient in your home, having access to cheap alternatives and uh, that you don't have to really work hard to access, then actually we'd see a much faster pace of change. From both your wind and gas perspective, what are you doing to make it easier for consumers to make the switch? 
if that's a question I can ask you, you know, from your perspective. Well, basically, I, yeah, uh, um, I think the, the best what we can do is really to uh, invest on innovative solutions. And basically, on the perspective on the consumer, okay, we are owning uh, infrastructure and then we have uh, also a producers, oil producers and gas producers in this perspective. But actually, the, the main achievement from our side is what I mentioned, that uh, we are really trying to move this very old-fashioned uh, industry, really to look in any kind of different possibilities, uh, mostly on achieving, let's say, uh, the goals which yeah. are set by, by the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Okay. Andreas, do you want to say anything on, on this particular topic? No? No? No, no, I'm going to go there, but no, because I do think industry has a, whole, a, a real uh, important role to play in the value chain that, that it gets to the citizen. And I think it's too easy to say citizens to change behavior. I think we need to create an ecology and an infrastructure that makes it easier for citizens to make the switch uh, rather than simply a pricing approach. But Sorry, if you don't want to come in, but you can come switching. in. It's not about switching. So come over to you then. You've you got your contribution. Just, I mean, switching is just one minor part. Yeah. Let's talk the real things. Mm. We need to change completely our mindset. Mm -hmm. We have an economic system that is based on consumption, mm -hmm. on uh, consumerism. A sustainable scenario for 1.5 is beyond consumerism. Let's be clear about mm. that. That's what we are talking about. So if you are talking about 1.5 scenario and Europe, what do we have to do? First of all, we have to be coherent. Mm. We are not being very coherent. Um, we have to understand what is the value of electrification. Uh, a 1.5 scenario is, first of all, electrification and gas after that and not first. And so electrification, we need to understand what is the contribution of electrification to energy efficiency. I would like to see these numbers coming up. Electrification can bring a lot of efficiency in the overall energy sector. Um, and of course, Dieter talked a lot about renewables playing a big role in the Green New Deal, but she didn't mention anything about grids. It was good that Fatih and Andreas did mention grids. Grids, building grids is very difficult. But it's not difficult because of technological reasons, it's difficult for uh, acceptance reasons. But the reality is that today it is difficult to build anything anywhere near anyone. It's not all NIMBY, it's banana. Um, and so we need to be much more open and outspoken of what this energy transition means. Res, renewable, need grids. If you want to do offshore, you will need to need grids. I'm really fascinated by you saying we need to do integrated planning. I think we need to do collaborative planning with multiple policies, priorities targeted at the same time. And when I say multiple priorities, it's, of course, energy security, decarbonization, but also environmental protection. Environment is more than just decarbonization and climate. Um, it's fairness, 
we need to bring people on board. There will be no way that we can decarbonize without people supporting this transition. And therefore, if we look at the Green New Deal, we need to understand how to listen to people. What is that people really want? Uh, people don't want to spend 10 euros less a year for the electricity bill. I'm sorry, that's not enough. People want to have a different role in the decision-making process. Collaborative planning could actually become a very nice way to address the local needs, what people is interested really at local level. We cannot have a European policy that is done at European level without looking very deeply at what is happening on the ground. We see a very strong right-wing push, extremism. This will not bring any decarbonization. Decarbonization will only be possible if we understand how to deliver benefits at very local level. And of course, renewable energies, grids, electrification, uh, distributed generation are all very important pieces of this big puzzle. Distributed generation, distributed resources, behind the meters solutions are all essential because they can be adding to this local energy transition. So a Green New Deal has to be fair. And uh, we need to understand what does it really mean to bring the consumers at the center of this transition. Um, the energy transition is not a technological transition. It's first and most of all a societal transition. And so please remember, electrification comes first and then all the rest we have to follow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that very uh, deeply thoughtful and provocative uh, presentation. Do you have any sense um, of optimism from what, any, what if any conversations you've had with the Commission about the Green Deal so far? Well, this has not yet been published. I think Indeed, everyone, everyone is going to push and pull mm. in the making of that. I hope that uh, the sustainable scenario from Fatih will uh, inform the Green New Deal. And I also hope that uh, the Commission will carefully understand uh, that there will be no Europe if there, are, if there is not a stronger attention to national realities, sub-national, very regional, and very local realities. And that's where the Green New Deal has to come from. It has to be a bottom-up movement and not a top-down. Top-down, Euro, Europe has to enable uh, localities because, because only enabling localities, then Europe can exist. No, indeed. One of the things that we promote, I mean, those of you may have caught this, our Vision for Europe report, we make recommendations for the new EU mandate. We propose a new form of localism, a, a European localism. It goes to the heart of what you were saying, actually, that we need a much more collaborative um, decision, 
power-sharing approach to Europe where citizens are more involved in decision-making. And we polled citizens again in this September. We asked them, how many of you would want to be involved in uh, decision-making at an EU-wide level? Over half, nearly half, were in, wanted to say. And they were even clear about the type of involvement like, they would like. I would like to ask a question to Fatih. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it before. Um, do you have uh, some numbers for us about... Uh, Yes, I what, have numbers for everything. What, what, is, what is the contribution of electrification to efficiency? How much can we reduce the overall energy demand if we electrify as much as possible? It changed from uh, region to region, but it's about on average about 20% without any uh, single change to your system. But if I can tell you one more number to you, which can disappoint uh, perhaps many of us uh, here, including our chairman. Now, we talk about Europe, European Green, European Green Deal. Mm. Now, this is very important, and uh, we are all eagerly waiting this. And as you mentioned, uh, we are working closely with the European Commission to sustainable development and being part of the, perhaps the basis for your discussion. But Europe should do it, Europe should lead it, but climate issue is a global issue. And Europe is only responsible of 9% of the emissions. There is still 91%. Okay? So uh, we should also think, in my view, this Green New Deal should not only have a, of course, it should have a domestic emphasis, what we do in Europe, but if the Europe has the real leadership of climate change, it should also have provide some external dynamics beyond being a source of inspiration, being a model for the rest. Because whatever happens in Europe will not change the global trends if the others don't move. Therefore, Europe should move, but also uh, should make the others move, in my view, Mm. Green New Deal should have such a uh, perspective uh, as well, highlighting the Europe's uh, historical and current leadership in the fight against climate change. Yes, and, and its global, you know, its role in a global balancing, uh, well, that balancing role, but also a broker role, but also a sponsor role of ideas and issues as as Europe. But one of the key areas um, surely has to be, and I think the one that you picked up is regionally is, is Africa. Africa, I mean, the the, the potential for that, to, that continent to be uh, enabled to be greener and learning from the lessons of, of other regions, but also using uh, our free trade agreements in Europe as a lever for greening processes with our neighbours. You want to come back again, Antonella? Yes, that's actually, that was uh, one of my points, but Ben, I was taken away by this uh, citizen behavioural change. I didn't talk about it. But uh, indeed, um, we cannot just do it for ourselves. And I think that uh, Europe can play a very big role also in capacity building because grid integration is not an easy thing to do. We need a lot of technical expertise. It's very often there is a, a huge commitment by many countries to um, grow renewables, but then the integration it's not a straightforward mechanism. And the other thing is that we talk very much about public uh, acceptance or public opposition to energy infrastructure. And we think this is a kind of uh, European madness. 
But the reality is that it's a global phenomenon. And we have learned so much in Europe about how to get in place better processes, how to protect the environment while we develop these large infrastructure projects. And I think Europe has a responsibility to also share this knowledge with neighboring countries and far beyond our borders. No, indeed, absolutely. Did you want to come in, Andres? Yeah, but I, I think we do, do, if you think beyond politics, um, I think we do quite a lot in Europe, and, and we set the example in the world. And just the latest one, um, when you talk offshore wind, one day you will not put offshore wind turbines on the ground on the sea, but they will be floating. And also here, again, Europe, with a lot of R&D and subsidies, um, got it started. We have now the largest um, uh, floating wind project will again be in Norway. And this will be, is a technology that we develop in Europe that will be manufactured first in Europe and that will make it from Europe then to Japan, to, uh, to the US, to other countries. So I think we set the example. Are we fast enough and... Uh, is that, um, is that all as we like it? No, it's not. But when I, one country that I visit at the moment quite often is Taiwan. Mm. And the Taiwanese um, um, Minister of Economic Affairs says to me, Andreas, I want to become the Denmark of Asia. I would like to be the renewable uh, platform oh, for all of Asia. I see, in that context, you're right. Yeah. And... and, and uh, and then he, of course, asked for a lot of support, and we have to do a lot locally. But we, we export at the moment the knowledge that we have in Europe and that was developed in Europe over 25 years into the world. Now, uh, how that looks financially in the end is a different question policy-wise, but at least I think we do, do a lot with the knowledge that we have and, and go globally and, and apply it wherever uh, technically possible. Mm. I suppose the issue is that, and I think... Fatih, I'm, I'm sure you, you perhaps didn't interpret, but the way I'm interpreting it is that placing Africa as a very strategic region in terms of our energy transition in the future, but also the desire to provide, get, get to a sustainable scenario. Because actually, if nothing happens, if we keep the policies as they are, Africa will become the biggest, a bigger problem than China and India. And that's what I think you're actually trying to highlight, that we need to take a much more of a strategic, but non-patronizing, non-colonial, but actually an enabling a power-sharing role with Africa to get to the right direction. Because some of the wind energy, wind, wind um, um, R&D you're talking about could have a huge impact uh, all across Africa. Definitely. I mean, Africa and Europe are very close to each other so from a, a geographical point mm. of view. If we don't see Africa economically develop, plus this uh, demographic boom, it will have implication for the Europe beyond energy. Exactly. I, I want to say uh, this. I mean, go and talk with the colleagues from uh, uh, Italy or Spain, or especially the southern part of the uh, uh, world or, or, or Europe. So therefore, Africa needs to develop, first of all, for itself. And if Africa has to develop, it is energy is the key for the uh, uh, development, for the growth. Nowadays, people think put energy and the emissions in the same basket. Mm. No, energy is a good thing. Mm. Emissions is a bad thing. So we have to dis distinguish these two things uh, from each other. And coming back to Africa, if I may, I don't know if there's anybody from Africa, but I want to defend Africa here. Because the, today, when you look at the cumulative emissions since 100 years, 
the share of Africa in the global emissions yeah. is less than 2%. Yeah. Yet, yet, the worst impact of climate change will be uh, felt in Africa in terms of drought, extreme weather events, typhoons, and, and others. This is very unfair. And plus, even, even if those hundreds of millions of people have no access to electricity in Africa, would have access to electricity uh, in Africa in 20 years of time, Africa's responsibility will go from 2% today to 3% because of the A, they will use a lot of low carbon uh, fuels which will, because it is cheap and, and available. And second, the amount of electricity the Africans are using are much less than the Europeans or Chinese or the Americans. So mm -hmm. Africa is very important for me, for Europe, beyond energy, beyond climate change for the issues ranging from uh, immigration to uh, other issues uh, which are uh, extremely important. Absolutely. And isn't it, uh, isn't it a sad um, a comment on our 21st century and the perversity of colonialism that actually, exactly. that you just said it, exactly. that, you know, exactly. the lowest users, but actually the greatest impact because of the, the North's uh, capacity to consume. Um, you wanted to come in before I bring in Bayana? Yes, just because I uh, just arrived from Nairobi. Where yes, I spent, indeed. And I met the vice president in Nairobi. He was very proud to... Uh, uh, say how much more people now, thanks to the leadership, is uh, grid connected or electricity as electricity access. And of course, this is still a minor part. And, and so I think that what Europe could do, together with other developed countries, is to come up with some financing schemes that reduce the cost of capital and really support. Um, distributed generation, small and large scale, it is all distributed, but also combine it with water because Africa, due to the impact of climate change, does have a water problem which will continue to increase. So I think, that again, also in the case of Africa, we need to tackle different priorities at the same time. Yeah, indeed. Boyan, you wanted to come into the... Uh, thank you. Now, uh, probably a little bit of uh, reflection mm. of uh, of the first uh, intervention by Antonella, because mm. uh, on let's say the, the electrification and the fact that we need to start uh, from that. Of course, uh, sure. in the previous years there was uh, a lot of says that uh, going no electric is the the proper part, uh, path uh, for all of us, and that. Uh, Actually, uh, that should be the direction that all of us, we need to follow for the energy mix. Um, so basically, we fully understand that because that was the easiest way to start, let's say, such kind of uh, decarbonization process when uh, the discussion started uh, already a few years ago. Uh, but uh, what is clear from the recent studies that uh, elect electrification cannot be enough. And uh, that's why uh, there needs to provide any kind of solutions to back up uh, uh, such kind of approach. Uh, basically, we and our members very much uh, supporting the electrification process as part of, uh, let's say, all the process related to decarbonization. We think that in this perspective, we think that the clean energy package is a very good start in this perspective but it is important and we think that there is a, a little bit of underestimation of the importance, let's say, and the investments that need to be uh, 
put it uh, further in relation to sector coupling, because uh, on the recent debates, it's more and more or less uh, uh, really clear that actually sector integration and sector coupling should be the backbone and the key for the future uh, energy energy mix. And uh, when we talk uh, about as well the public acceptance, mm -hmm. I think it's also important point which shouldn't be underestimated as well, because uh, what we know recently from uh, policymakers is that there is a little bit of uh, problematic acceptance by by the society and European citizens related to extra electrification and elect putting electric uh, lines, electrification lines. Mm -hmm. sure. I need to answer to this because <laughs> indeed, indeed there is uh, uh, opposition to everything. Um, and keeping to do gas is the easiest option. And this is what worries me most because we are actually kind of brainwashing uh, ourselves on the fact that because we cannot build renewables, wind, solar, even solar, PV is becoming a, a problem, we cannot build grids, so as a default option, we do gas. But we need to think all the way through to full decarbonization, not just the next five, ten years, not just a tiny bit, it's a long journey, and that that's why we need a completely new narrative, which is not electrification only. Don't take me wrong. I think we do need gas, but I'm saying electrification first with all the consequences, because doing electrification will also mean a sustainable business for the green gas, green gas being something that is generated most likely, hopefully, only exclusively by renewable, variable renewable energy sources, because the non-variable ones will have a, a better use in the system. So um, electrification uh, today is dying away. And one, um, one proof of it is that yesterday, no, last week, there were the ENSO scenarios being published. Um, and we have a, a climate scenario, which is foreseeing 70% gas imports in 2050. If we are in 2050, 70% of gas imports, uh, well, I find it uh, quite challenging. And the, the, if this scenario has been done to understand the impacts on the infrastructure, I think it's very good. Scenarios should be learning tools and not normative tools. But then, why don't we also learn what is the impact on infrastructure on other extreme scenarios? Sure. This is about coherence. No, no, absolutely. But actually, regardless of this conversation, right, what, we've, what we know is that our behavior towards coal hasn't changed and needs to change fundamentally based, based on the uh, uh, Energy Outlook report. Also, that the window of opportunity is running out. All the IPCC reports have said to us, we had a window of four years, if that, or five. We've already eaten into a year and a half, two years of that. So our window, we've almost got three years to really genuinely transform our perspective and our approach to the investments, but also types of energy and the mix of energy that we need out there. 
I want to take some views from the audience. What have you, in reaction to what you've heard? Gentlemen here at the front, gentlemen there. Anyone at the back? I don't want to miss you out, those of you sitting in the gods, as, you, as I would call it. Okay. Say, say who you are. Thank you. I'm Adel Gamal, uh, heading the uh, European Energy Research Alliance. <clears throat> and I have a question for uh, Fatih Birol. Um, on your one before last slide, uh, it showed quite a, a gloomy uh, uh, figure, and it shows very clearly that if we want to be serious about uh, <clears throat> the, the Paris objective, it's about full decarbonization, we need to use all technologies that are available. Uh, this means that this will not come by market forces, and also this will not come by citizens' uh, willingness. It is not what the citizens will be willing to. It will only come, as you rightly pointed out, with a very strong government intervention. So my question is, <clears throat> first of all, do you think this is feasible and what are the conditions for this to happen, considering, first of all, that we are in a situation where global governance has com almost completely disappeared and we are, uh, after a period of 30 years, where basically we've seen all, all the regulations happening, and at the moment the market forces are, are really ruling it. So considering the window of opportunity we're discussing, mm. how is this feasible and what are the key conditions, in your view, beyond Europe especially? Okay, before you answer that question, there's a gentleman there, here, if I can see. And it's because time is running out. Anyone at the back? that I may have missed out. Don't be shy. No? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, my Say name you is are. Walter Kennes. I used to work in the Commission on Development Cooperation. It's interesting to hear uh, a nice and positive uh, perspective on Africa. And my question is uh, related to that. It's also related to the importance of uh, wood and, and wood products, because you mentioned a huge increase in urban population, you say there will be cement needed and building materials, but Africa also has the second largest tropical forest and has a big potential of also using wood uh, products in, in the building. This was not mentioned uh, uh, once, but also uh, using this as a material keeps the carbon there uh, in the wood for 100 years. So that's it. Thank you. No one at the back? Ah. Lady here. Thank you. Cecile Noriga from the European Independent Fuel Suppliers Association. Um, a topic we have not uh, touched upon very much, I find, is the transport uh, mm. sector. Uh, we know in Europe it's uh, one of the biggest challenges, and I'm sure it's true worldwide that it's uh, difficult to curb emissions uh, from the transport sector. Um, we expect electrification to help, but um, it might not be enough, so I was wondering uh, what are the views of the panelists on solutions for the transport sector, road, uh, but also maritime and aviation. Thank you. I'm glad you made that point because that goes back to the consumer. If it's cheaper to get a Ryanair flight to go from one member state to the other than, by, than taking a train, what are you going to opt for? You know, so we need to have a really very different approach to pricing. Yes, I'll start with, if you want to take the electrification. Yes, thank we'll you very much. End uh, off. 
And any final remarks you have? Yeah, final remarks. Uh, uh, basically, uh, it was very interesting to listen to uh, the debate uh, last week, uh, which uh, the commissioner for the designate commissioner for transport was having in this perspective. And actually, uh, she was not having an approach of reducing any flights, uh, although that, uh, that there is a need uh, economy to work properly in this perspective and not really to, how to say, uh, reduce uh, the possibility of, of the European citizens to, to travel. But indeed, uh, there is a need to find a proper solution and proper traffic if uh, traffic solution for the uh, planes, if we are talking about planes in, in this perspective. Um, about uh, So basically, we are also uh, representing LNG, which is one of the very good tools uh, to, to decarbonize uh, also the system. And for the moment, uh, the LNG, it's uh, also looking on a perspective, not a you know, different solution, uh, uh, short-term, medium-term, and also long-term, we're having a possibility to transport also decarbonized uh, uh, solutions in this perspective. Of course, heavy-duty transport uh, working heavily in this perspective as well. Great. That's before I will end with you. So, Antonella, can I start? Me? Yeah. Any um, final remarks, but also your response to the I think the real transport. question about transport uh, is how can we make developing countries leapfrog into the future? Because um, the, the emissions from transport in developing countries are going to increase massively. Mm. And we have seen already in Europe, North America, how difficult it is to electrify yeah. transport and, of course, also to come up with new fuels, uh, renewable fuels and so on. But even if we decarbonize all our transport in Europe, what are we going to do with Africa, with India and China? So China is already progressively pushing for electrification of at least road transport. Uh, but I see huge challenges. And so the real question is how do we make them jump over and not just follow our way we, we developed? In a way that's not patronising, hopefully. That's one of the issues, I think, in terms of how our global relations work. That's not a request for you to make a comment, but um, thank you very much for that. Andreas. Yeah, on, on transport, I'd rather have a personal uh, opinion and, um, than, than an uh, official one, because if I see the debate that we have internally, and, and you said it's, it's mostly about our own behaviour and attitude, and uh, the, the discussion that you have, go, we go by car, by plane, you said it, Ryanair is much cheaper than any train in many cases. And as long as, as most people, and unfortunately I believe still most people do that, make that transport decision on an economical uh, basis rather than an environmental one, then it's, uh, we, we can't demand leadership then if, if we don't change. Mm. And only if we as consumers then change, in that case I'm a consumer just like everyone else, if we then change, um, I think then we can set the example and then the supply will follow. But regulation can help. Sure, but there is an issue about, I mean, <clears throat> the vast majority of populations in most of these countries are poor. And actually making those choices, you have to make it economically viable for that 
behavior to be changed. And I think we mustn't forget that actually when you think about both in China or elsewhere, but also in Europe, the average incomes are so low that your, your ability to switch from one to another has to be informed by what your affordable disposable income is. Sometimes we forget the poverty element of this, I think sometimes. We really need to be thinking about pricing and adaptation for the poorest in our communities to be able to accelerate change. But anyway, that's, that's my thoughts. Fatih, over to you for answering those questions, but also final conclusion. conclusion. Just three minutes uh, here. First, on transportation. Now, two points maybe. First, aviation, you mentioned. Asia is just starting to fly. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, it is. The Asia, I mean, the, when you look at the per capita air miles mm. in Asia compared to Europe and United States, it is very low. With the increasing income levels, they will fly. Plus the low-cost carriers, big, big, big growth of oil demand growth and current technologies don't show something else and therefore the emissions. This is number one. Number two, electricity, electric cars. You are, uh, you mentioned very good points on electrification, but look, electrification alone doesn't solve the problem. Mm. I give you one example. I don't want to give the country's name, but one country, let's assume one country in Asia, which is a big electric car push. In this country, I asked my colleagues, and they have calculated a CO2 emissions from the 1970s model of a Volkswagen emits less emissions than the, uh, the, uh, the last model of an electric car because it is basically coal the electricity comes from. So without the carbonization of the power sector, Electrification alone doesn't bring you anywhere uh, in terms of CO2 emissions. So this and on the uh, transportation sector, a wood sustainable use of uh, wood is important for Africa, not only for the uh, uh, not only for the industrial sector but also for uh, uh, the uh, heating and other parts of the uh, entire industry uh, processes. It is cement, it can be uh, somewhere else, but it should be sustainable so that it doesn't uh, harm more than it brings the uh, benefits. Now, an excellent question, and, uh, uh, another excellent question on the role of governments. First, I should tell you that when I look at the role of governments and the need for governments, desperate need for governments and the government's position across the world, it will be a uh, not right if I say I am optimistic, very openly. This ranges many indicators from the uh, budget they put, they allocate for the R&D, for the new technologies, to different uh, parameters uh, I am not. And final remark, and this is my, uh, I thought the other week, I found a very good uh, uh, line, and I had an interview with uh, Reuters, and I get them to give a, long interview with Reuters, I thought they would pick it up, but they pick up everything but not this one, since we have a colleague from Reuters uh, here. Are you listening? Who is listening and writing shirt. every single uh, word I am writing. Now, the challenge is really, really very huge. Let's think about this, not only Europe, but also in the, the world, one ton of CO2 going to atmosphere from Jakarta or from uh, Mannheim or from uh, uh, Padua or from Detroit, it has the same effect on everybody. And the numbers show that the situation is very desperate. How can we get out of this? This is my quote. I think the only chance I see, the only chance uh, I see, 
the world needs a grand coalition encompassing governments, utilities, citizens, investors, and people who are seriously and genuinely dedicated to uh, tackle the climate change. In the absence of this coalition, in the absence of international concerted efforts, we don't have chance to reach our climate uh, targets. We can only show slides, discussions, go to Starbucks and tweets, but it doesn't uh, uh, go through. We need the Grand Coalition. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Trust you, trust you. I'm looking forward to next year's because actually I can see that in the what, what I think most of you must witness, see this as well, that actually what we're witnessing is much more hyperbole and political commentary rather than actual action. At our recent um, annual State of Europe roundtable, Pascal Lamy, one of our trustees, said that what we need is a mentality of a war room where we need to bring everyone in, all the stakeholders. It's almost like Grand, grand Coalition um, in Europe and elsewhere to really focus on this. Otherwise, if we don't, we're going to miss the window of opportunity. I hope we don't. Um, I do hope politicians listen, um, but we, what we do know is the clock is ticking and the time is running out. And what we know, just from our experiences, just reflect on this year from the, heaty, the heated moments in Europe. I don't mean politics, but actually the, the hot weather we experience in the north, but actually what's happening in Venice and what's happening in north of England, elsewhere. We're going to see much more of that. I just hope that we don't have to get to the point of absolute catastrophe before we say it's too late. Colleagues, I hope we've been able to, enabled you to connect to the right issues, debate the key points, and fundamentally think about the change that we need to take place immediately and into the future. Thank you all very much. Let's thank our speakers in the normal way. Thank you very much. And thank you.